taught on the temptations of Christ. And he said, no, no, I haven't yet. He said, that'd be a good thing to talk about. I said, great, because that's what I planned on preaching when you're away. <laughs> so today we're going to be coming from the book of Matthew, chapter 4. Matthew, chapter 4. It's my intention to take these one test at a time. And so while I'll read the whole passage, Matthew 4, 1 through 11, um, we'll really focus on the first four, um, first four verses. So that's Matthew chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 11, but we'll really focus in on verses 1 through 4. And it reads, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. On the, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Very peculiar passage, right? <clears throat> Some commentators group this together with the baptism of Christ, and they basically call it, uh, the preparation of the Messiah. And I agree with that, and I'll kind of hint at why. Let's remember what occurred during the baptism of Jesus. He comes to the water, and John says, I have need to be baptized of you. And Jesus says, just let this be so that all things can be fulfilled. And he enters into the water, and he is baptized by John, and the heavens open up. And God proclaims, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. But not only that, the Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove and rests on him. 
interesting passage. We have a few things that pop out there that have implications to this temptation or testing. The first is this idea of sonship. The father proclaims, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, our minds immediately jump to a relational type of sonship. You say, well, there's God the Father, and there's God the Son. And so we think of it in a way that God is saying, this is my son, this is the Son of God. I'm well pleased in him. Listen to me the way you would, or listen to him the way you would listen to me. But that doesn't come alone. Accompanied with it is this descending of the Holy Spirit. The word used there for descending basically means the Spirit is being poured out onto Jesus. Now that symbolism should really draw you to an anointing, an exercise that would be done for kings. And so you have the spirit anointing Jesus being poured out with not a drop being spilt, filling him up, anointing him as king. And so when you hear sonship language in relation to Jesus, you're actually hearing that Jesus is king. Now, why does that matter? That matters because this king is now going to be tested. This king is now going to display his worthiness for his appointment and his anointing. Then we read something different. It says, then, Mark uses the term immediately. And so there's this idea that once Jesus is baptized, the spirit immediately directs him to the wilderness. The spirit directs Jesus to the wilderness. And he directs Jesus to the wilderness for a purpose. It says in the text that he was led up by the spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. By the spirit in the wilderness to be tempted. So now our minds shift from this idea of a king. Now to the people of Israel. Why the wilderness? Why did he have to go to the wilderness? And obviously this isn't a place full of tall trees. This isn't the Amazon. This isn't some forest. This is a desert, a desert wilderness. No food, no water to be thought of. And he is lit up by God the Spirit, into this wilderness 
for a specific purpose. There are three offices that we often say Christ holds. Anybody know what those offices are? Prophet, priest, and king. That must be the amen. Prophet, priest, and king. He holds those three offices, and each of those offices holds a specific purpose. Right? The prophet calls the people of God back to covenant faithfulness. The priest teaches the word of God to the people of God. And the king, well, the king is the ideal Israelite. The king is the one you would look up to. You would see and you would say, this is how I am to live. Christ holds all those offices. But Christ is the son of God. And God called his son out of Egypt. And for a particular time, his son roamed around in the wilderness to be tested. And so Jesus, in this particular passage, is drawing our mind back to the people of Israel, back to those who have been rescued by God from the bondage of slavery, back to those who have now entered into the wilderness to be led by God, back to those who have been tempted by the devil, tested and tried in the wilderness. And so not only do we have this kingship idea, but we also have Christ representing the people of Israel, representing God's son who dwelled in the wilderness for those 40 years. And then it says to be tempted by the devil. So the spirit led him there. The devil tempts him. What's God's role in this? Well, God's role is the testing, the proving, not the tempting. In James, we read that God tempts no one. Let no one who says he is tempted say that he's being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. This word is the same word being used for tested and tempted. In reference to drawing someone to doing something evil, it's translated tempted, but in the more truest sense, it basically means to test or to try. And so God is displaying through Christ, as I said, his worthiness for the office. So he's being tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Why did he fast? Why 40 days? Why 40 nights? Well, it could represent those 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness, and no doubt it does. There was also another who fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Does anybody know? Moses. 
Moses fasted for 40 days and 40 nights as he received the commandments of God. And so we also have, right, Moses was prophet, was he not? We also have Christ being the one that would come after Moses, right? God will raise up from amongst your brethren another like me, one who has known God face to face. And so in these 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, once again, bringing us back to this idea of Israel in the wilderness, we also have this further connection to one who knows God face to face. One who has received from God the very words of God. And one who is to lead the people of God. And he was hungry. Speaking to his humanity. One who has not eaten for this prolonged period of time and his flesh is weak. His stomach growls. His desire is for food. And the tempter came. Now, if we look at Luke's account of this passage, what we read is that Jesus was tempted for 40 days. And then we have these greater temptations, the three that we read through these 11 verses. And so throughout this time of fasting, Jesus is being tempted. Throughout this time of fasting, Jesus is doing what Moses did, which is focusing on the Lord. Throughout this time of fasting, he is still being bombarded from every side. And then he gets hungry after these 40 days. His flesh becomes weak and there is an opportunity for a specific strike. And the tempter comes and addresses that particular area of weakness. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God. Now, this isn't an if of doubt. This is more of a sense. We, we know you're the son of God. We heard it proclaimed by the father from heaven. We, we know the spirit descended on you. So since you are the son of God, your body's weak. You've been out here starving yourself for 40 days. 40 nights. You have all this power. Why suffer when you don't have to? Why bypass all that God has given you? Look at these stones. Turn them into bread. Now, is there anything wrong with Jesus turning stones to bread? Is there anything wrong with him performing a miracle and feeding others? 
Didn't he do it throughout the Gospels? Didn't he feed the 5,000 at one point and fed another 4,000 at another? There's nothing wrong with making bread out of nothing, transforming stones to bread. He's hungry. His his body says it's time to eat. And the devil just says what our body's already telling us, right? If we were starving in the wilderness, in the desert, no water, no food, would we not say to ourselves, Man, if these stones were bread, what a feast I would have. Is there anyone who wouldn't say the same thing? Anyone who wouldn't be thinking the same thing? So what's so wrong about what the devil tells Jesus? What's so out of place? Jesus answers, it is written, in the midst of his struggles, in the midst of this trial, this testing, this tempting by Satan, in the midst of his hunger and fasting, his time of weakness, he gives us this assurance about the sufficiency of scripture. He tells us it's written. In other words, God said, man shall not live by bread alone. It didn't say man didn't need bread. It didn't say man doesn't need to eat food. But it says your life does not just come from feeding your physical body. Bread alone is not enough for you. Bread alone is not what you need. There is no life in bread alone. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's where true life is found. True life is found in God. True nourishment is found in God. True satisfaction is found in God. But that doesn't really address the problem. See, Jesus quotes back from Deuteronomy. He, he goes back to this time where Moses is explaining this stuff to the people of Israel. Right? He comes alongside and he says, God did all of this stuff for you. He tested you here and you did this. But he did all of this for a purpose so that you would know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
It was God who provided manna from heaven when the people of Israel grumbled. It was God who gave them meat and quails one day a week when the people of Israel desired the the hot pots and meat pots of Egypt. It was God who led them throughout the wilderness for 40 years. And they never grew weary or tired. Their clothes never wore out. God's provision was more than enough. And yet these people, these Israelites, still grumbled. They still did not trust for God when he provided manna and gave specific instruction. Only take enough for what you can eat today. What did they do? They gathered enough for the week and it went bad and they had maggots and worms in their tents. Because in their minds, they are sufficient in themselves. We don't desire to be under someone else's authority. We don't desire in our flesh to be accountable to anyone else. We want to be free. Was that not the original sin? Was that not Adam's sin? Stepping from under the authority and covering of God so that he himself would be the last word? And yet Jesus says that bread alone is not enough. Because God is what I really need. His word supplies me with the nourishment necessary for real life, for true life. Making loaves of bread out of stone wasn't the problem. The problem was that in doing so, Jesus himself would be stepping from under the will of God to satisfy his stomach for a time. He would be taking advantage of all that he was given for a specific purpose to satisfy a right now need. He would be doing what Esau did coming in from the wilderness and selling his birthright for one simple bowl of soup. Why was Jesus fasting in the first place? Who was it that brought Jesus to the wilderness? Who was it that ministered to Jesus throughout those 40 days and those 40 nights? Mark tells us, The angels of God were ministering to him during that time. And now there is an opportunity presented by the devil to say, provide for yourself. Rather than trusting on God to provide for you. And Jesus recognizes this. 
and says, no, I can't provide for myself. For all that I need is found in God and his word. Why does any of this matter? Think about Christ's offices. Prophet, priest, and king. If you are to call others to covenant faithfulness, you too ought to be faithful. If you are to teach others what thus says the Lord, you too ought know what the Lord has said. And if you are to live a life that should serve as an example to the people of God, shouldn't you live that way? In full submission and dependence upon God and his word. The wonderful thing about this passage is that Jesus quotes a scripture that's relevant to men and women. This is God in human flesh placing himself under the same responsibility, the same obligation that you and I as flesh and blood are under. He does not separate himself out and take hold of all the privilege that he has. He doesn't view this divinity as something to be grasped and held on to at all costs, but himself humbled. And was tempted. So that in all things he might be a great high priest for you and I. One who can relate to the things that you and I suffer in all things, in all ways. When we go through these temptations, Jesus does not ignore his humanity. Jesus does not take hold of some privilege that you and I did not or do not have, but rather he shows us in fullness just how sufficient God is in all things, not just in some spiritual realm we can't see, but in the daily matters of life. His word is sufficient. In our everyday struggles, God's word is sufficient. And he models that so perfectly for us here. There's one other connection that's made that I left out on purpose. In between, or the baptism of Jesus and 
the temptation of Jesus. Luke puts a genealogy. Right? Matthew, in his genealogy, connects Jesus back to David and connects Jesus back to Abraham. But Luke connects him back to Adam. Luke connects Jesus not to the king, not to the father of the faith, but to the first man the father of all humanity, the one who we are fallen in. And he shows us that Jesus is also a new and better Adam, one who does not fall victim to the temptations of this world, one who does not seek to be from under the authority and the wisdom and the order that God has set forth, but one who recognizes the fullness of the gifts of God and that they are only found in him. All that we desire, all that we seek, all that we need are found in him. So, how can we apply this in a meaningful way? Well, it doesn't tell us to do anything, but it does tell us who to be, doesn't it? It does speak to the character that you and I, as Christians, should have. And that is a character of one who is utterly dependent upon God. Not taking the desires of the flesh and making them primary but recognizing that we ought not neglect the things of God for the things of man. And so as we meditate on this throughout the week, let us think, where is it that we are neglecting the things of God? Where can we be focusing our attention more on God and recognizing that if we put him first, if we seek him first, all these other things will be added. Let us focus on that. God and his provisions and his sufficiency uh, throughout all of life. Let's pray.